Chapter Five of the Life of Reverend Henry Martin by John Hall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The fleet touched at several ports on their way. Some portions of his journal at St. Salvador in South America will give an interesting variety to our pages. I continued my walk in quest of a wood or some trees where I might sit down, but all was appropriated. No tree was to be approached except through an enclosure. At last I came to a magnificent porch before a garden gate, which was open. I walked in, but finding the vista led straight to the house, I turned to the right, and found myself in a grove of coconut trees, orange trees, and several strange fruit trees. Under them was nothing but rose trees, but no verdure on the ground. Oranges were strewed like apples in an orchard. Perceiving that I was observed by the slaves, I came up to the house, and was directed by them to an old man sitting under a tree, apparently insensible from illness. I spoke to him in French and in English, but he took no notice. Presently a young man and a young lady appeared, to whom I spoke in French, and was very politely desired to sit down at a little table, which was standing under a large space before the house like a veranda. They then brought me oranges and a small red acid fruit, the name of which I asked, but cannot recollect. The young man sat opposite, conversing about Cambridge. He had been educated in a Portuguese university. Almost immediately on finding I was of Cambridge, he invited me to come when I liked to his house. A slave, after bringing the fruit, was sent to gather three roses for me. The master then walked with me round the garden, and showed me, among the rest, the coffee plant. When I left him, he repeated his invitation. His name was Antonio Corre. November 14th. Signor Antonio received me with the same cordiality. He begged me to dine with him. In the cool of the evening we walked out to see his plantation. Here everything possessed the charm of novelty. The grounds included two hills and a valley between them. The hills were covered with coconut trees, bananas, mangoes, orange and lemon trees, olives, coffee, chocolate and cotton plants, etc. In the valley was a large plantation of a shrub or tree, bearing a cluster of small berries, which he desired me to taste. I did, and found it was pepper. It had lately been introduced from Batavia, and answered very well. It grows on a stem about the thickness of a finger, to the height of about seven feet, and is supported by a stick, which at that height has another across it for the branches to spread upon. Slaves were walking about the grounds, watering the trees and turning up the earth. The soil appeared very dry and loose. At night I returned to the ship in one of the country boats, which are canoes made of a tree hollowed out, and paddled by three men. November 18th. Went ashore at six o'clock, and found that Signor Antonio had been waiting for me two hours. It being too late to go into the country, I stayed at his house till dinner. He kept me too much in his company, but I found intervals for retirement. In a cool and shady part of the garden, near some water, I sat and sang, O'er the gloomy hills of darkness." I could read and pray aloud, as there was no fear of anyone understanding me. A slave in my bedroom washed my feet. I was struck with the degree of abasement expressed in the act, and as he held the foot in the towel, with his head bowed down towards it, 
I remembered the condescension of the blessed Lord. May I have grace to follow such humility. November 19th. Early after breakfast, went in a palanquin to Señor Dominigos, and from thence with him two or three miles into the country. At intervals I got out and walked. I was gratified with the sight of what I wanted to see, namely, some part of the country in its original state, covered with wood. It was hilly, but not mountainous. The luxuriance was so rank that the whole space, even to the tops of the trees, was filled with long, stringy shrubs and weeds, so as to make them impervious and opaque. The road was made by cutting away the earth on the side of the hill, so that there were woods above and below us. The object of our walk was to see a pepper plantation, made in a valley on a perfect level. The symmetry of the trees was what charmed my Portuguese friend, but to me, who was seeking the wild features of America, it was just what I did not want. The person who showed us the grounds was one that had been a major in the Portuguese army, and had retired on a pension. The border consisted of pine-apples, planted between each tree. The interior was set with lemon-trees, here and there, between the pepper-plants. We were shown the root of the mandioc, called by us tapioca. It was like a large horse-radish. The mill for grinding it was extremely simple. A horizontal wheel, turned by horses, put in motion by a vertical one, on the circumference of which was a thin, brazen plate furnished on the inside like a nutmeg grater. A slave held the root to the wheel, which grated it away, and threw it in the form of a moist paste into a receptacle below. It is then dried in pans, and used as a farina with meat. At Señor Antonio's a plate of tapioca was attached to each of our plates. Some of the pepper was nearly ripe, and of a reddish appearance. When gathered, which it is in April, it is dried in the sun." November 23rd. In the afternoon took leave of my kind friends, Signor and Signora Corre. They and the rest came out to the garden gate, and continued looking, till the winding of the road hid me from their sight. The poor slave Raymond, who had attended me and carried my things, burst into a flood of tears as we left the door, and when I parted from him he was going to kiss my feet, but I shook hands with him, much affected by such extraordinary kindness in people to whom I had been a total stranger till within a few days. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his mercies? It had lately been announced to the army which was carried in the fleet that they were to be led to attack the Cape of Good Hope, then held by the Dutch. This intelligence, which had been kept secret until they were approaching the Cape, excited Mr. Martin to be more active in the service of these men, who were soon to be exposed to the dangers of warfare and many of whom would, probably, be sent to eternity. He observed a day of fasting and prayer in their behalf, addressed them from the scriptures whenever he had the opportunity, and several were induced to kneel publicly in prayer with him, notwithstanding the ridicule and carelessness of a greater part of the crew of soldiers. During a season of great sickness on board his ship, at which time the captain died, he was very useful in attending to the wants of the sick, and leading their minds to consider the necessity of preparation for eternity. On the last Sunday of this year he preached a sermon, adapted to their circumstances, from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Seeing, then, that all these things shall be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In which he endeavoured to impress his hearers with a sense of the importance of religion, reminding them of the ways by which providence had been calling them to reflection, by the prevalence of disease, the death of their captain, the dangers of the voyage, and the prospect of being engaged in battle. His own mind enjoyed great peace at this time, as is evident from his diary. Separated from my friends and country for ever, there is nothing to distract me from hearing the voice of my beloved, and coming away from this world and walking with him in love, amidst the flowers that perfume the air of paradise, and the harmony of the happy, happy saints who are singing his praise. Thus hath the Lord brought me to the conclusion of the year, and though I have broken his statutes, and not kept his commandments, yet he hath not utterly taken away his loving-kindness, nor suffered his truth to fail. I thought at the beginning of the year that I should have been in India at this time, if I should have escaped all the dangers of the climate. These dangers are yet to come, but I can leave all cheerfully to God. If I am weary of anything, it is of my life of sinfulness. I want a life of more devotion and holiness, and yet am so vain as to be expecting the end without the means. I am far from regretting that I ever came on this delightful work. Were I to choose for myself, I could scarcely find a situation more agreeable to my taste. On, therefore, let me go, and persevere steadily in this blessed undertaking, through the grace of God, dying daily to the opinions of men, and aiming with a more single eye at the glory of the everlasting God. On the 3rd of January, 1806, the fleet anchored at the Cape, and the army was landed and led to the attack, which commenced early the next morning. As soon as the battle was over, Mr. Martin went on shore in hopes of being useful to the sufferers. His own account of the scene, in a letter to a friend in England, gives a terrible picture of a field of battle. I embraced the opportunity of getting to the wounded men soon after my landing. A party of the company's troops were ordered to repair to the field of battle to bring away the wounded under the command of Major Blank, whom I knew. By his permission I attached myself to them, and marched six miles over a soft burning sand, till we reached the fatal spot. We found several but slightly hurt, and these we left for a while, after seeing their wounds dressed by a surgeon. A little onward were three mortally wounded. One of them, on being asked where he was struck, opened his shirt and showed a wound in his left breast. The blood which he was spitting showed that he had been shot through the lungs. As I spread my greatcoat over him, by the surgeon's desire, who passed on without attempting to save him, I spoke of the blessed gospel, and besought him to look to Jesus Christ for salvation. He was surprised, but could not speak, and I was obliged to leave him in order to reach the troops from whom the officers, out of regard to my safety, would not allow me to be separated. Among several others, some wounded and some dead, was Captain Blank, who was shot by a rifleman. We all stopped for a while to gaze in pensive silence on his pale body, and then passed on to witness more proofs of the sin and misery of fallen man. Descending into the plain where the main body of each army had met, I saw some of the fifty-ninth, one of whom, a corporal, who sometimes had sung with us, 
told me that none of the fifty-ninth were killed, and none of the officers wounded. Some farmhouses, which had been in the rear of the enemy's army, had been converted into an hospital for the wounded, whom they were bringing from all quarters. The surgeon told me that they were already in the houses two hundred. Some of them were Dutch. A more ghastly spectacle than that which presented itself here I could not have conceived. They were ranged without and within the house, in rows, covered with gore. Indeed, it was the blood which they had not had time to wash off that made their appearance more dreadful than the reality, for few of their wounds were mortal. The confusion was very great, and sentries and officers were so strict in their duty that I had no fit opportunity of speaking to any of them, except a Dutch captain with whom I conversed in French. After this I walked out again with the surgeon to the field, and saw several of the enemies wounded. A Hottentot, who had had his thigh broken by a ball, was lying in extreme agony, biting the dust, and uttering horrid imprecations upon the Dutch. I told him that he ought to pray for his enemies, and after telling the poor wretched man of the gospel, I begged him to pray to Jesus Christ. But our conversation was soon interrupted, for in the absence of the surgeon, who was gone back for his instruments, a highland soldier came up and challenged me with the words, "'Who are you?' "'An Englishman.' "'No,' said he, "'you are French,' and began to present his piece. As I saw that he was rather intoxicated, and did not know but that he might actually fire out of mere wantonness, I sprang up towards him and told him that if he doubted my word, he might take me as his prisoner to the English camp, but that I certainly was an English clergyman.' This pacified him, and he behaved with great respect. The surgeon, on examining the wound, said the man must die, and so left him. At length I found an opportunity of returning as much as I wished, in order to recover from distraction of mind, and to give free scope to reflection. I lay down on the border of a clump of shrubs or bushes, with the field of battle in view, and there lifted up my soul to God— Mournful as the scene was, I yet thanked God that he had brought me to see a specimen, though a terrible one, of what men by nature are. May the remembrance of this day ever excite me to pray and labor more for the propagation of the gospel of peace. Then shall men love one another, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The blue mountains to the eastward, which formed the boundary of the prospect, were a cheering contrast to what was immediately before me, for there I conceived my beloved and honoured fellow-servants, companions in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, to be passing the days of their pilgrimage, far from the world, imparting the truths of the precious gospel to benighted souls. Note, the Moravian missionaries at Gronkloff, and Gnadenthal, and those belonging to the London Missionary Society at Bethelstorp. End note. May I receive grace to be a follower of their faith and patience, and do you pray, my brother, as I know that you do, that I may have a heart more warm and a zeal more ardent in this glorious cause. On the tenth the fort and town were taken from the Dutch. Whilst the fleet was delayed, Martin visited Dr. Vanderkemp, and the other missionaries at the Cape, and his meeting with them was a source of great joy. 
From the first moment I arrived, I had been anxiously inquiring about Dr. Vanderkemp. I heard at last, to my no small delight, that he was now in Cape Town. But it was long before I could find him. At length I did. He was standing outside of the house, silently looking up at the stars. A great number of black people were sitting around. On my introducing myself, he led me in, and called for Mr. Reed. I was beyond measure delighted at the happiness of seeing him, too. The circumstance of meeting with these beloved and highly honoured brethren so filled me with joy and gratitude for the goodness of God's providence that I hardly knew what to do. January 14th. Continued walking with Mr. Reed till late. He gave me a variety of curious information respecting the mission. He told me of his marvellous success among the heathen, how he had heard them amongst the bushes pouring out their hearts to God. At all this my soul did magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoiced in God my Saviour. Now that I am in a land where the Spirit of God appears, as in the ancient days, as in the generation of old, let a double portion of that Spirit rest upon this unworthy head, that I may go forth to my work, rejoicing like a strong man, to run my race. January 20th Walking home, I asked Dr. Vanderkemp if he had ever repented of his undertaking. No, said the old man, smiling, and I would not exchange my work for a kingdom. Reed told me of some of his trials. He has often been so reduced for want of clothes as scarcely to have any to cover him. The reasonings of his mind were, I am here, Lord, in thy service. Why am I left in this state? It seemed to be suggested to him, if thou wilt be my servant, be contented to fare in this way. If not, go, and fare better. His mind was thus satisfied to remain God's missionary, with all its concomitant hardships. At night my sinful soul enjoyed a most reviving season in prayer. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, and pleaded with fervor for the interests of his church. January 30th rose at five, and began to ascend Table Mountain at six, with S and M. I went on chiefly alone. I thought of the Christian life, what uphill work it is, and yet there are streams flowing down from the top, just as there was water coming down by the kloof by which we ascended. Towards the top it was very steep, but the hope of being soon at the summit encouraged me to ascend very lightly. As the kloof opened, a beautiful flame-coloured flower appeared in a little green hollow, waving in the breeze. It seemed to be an emblem of the beauty and peacefulness of heaven, as it shall open upon the weary soul when its journey is finished and the struggles of the deathbed are over. We walked up and down the whole length, which might be between two and three miles, and one might be said to look round the world from this promontory. I felt a solemn awe at the grand prospect, from which there was neither noise nor small objects to draw off my attention. I reflected, especially when looking at the immense expanse of sea on the east, which was to carry me to India, on the certainty that the name of Christ should, at some period, resound from shore to shore. I felt commanded to wait in silence, and see how God would bring his promises to pass. We began to descend at half-past two. Whilst sitting to rest myself towards night, I began to reflect, 
with death-like despondency on my friendless condition. Not that I wanted any of the comforts of life, but I wanted those kind friends who loved me, and in whose company I used to find so much delight after my fatigues. And then, remembering that I should never see them more, I felt one of those keen pangs of misery that occasionally shoot across my breast. It seemed like a dream that I had actually undergone banishment from them for life, or rather like a dream that I had ever hoped to share the enjoyments of social life. But at this time I solemnly renewed my self-dedication to God, praying that I might receive grace to spend my days for His service in continued suffering and separation from all I held most dear in this life. Amen. How vain and transitory are those pleasures, which the worldliness of my heart will ever be magnifying into real good! The rest of the evening I felt weaned from the world and all its concerns, with somewhat of a melancholy tranquillity. January 31 from great fatigue of body, was in doubt about going to the hospital, and very unwilling to go. However, I went, and preached with more freedom than ever I had done there. Having some conversation with Colonel H., I asked him whether, if the wound he had received in the late engagement had been mortal, his profaneness would have recurred with any pleasure to his mind on a deathbed. He made some attempts at palliation, though in great confusion but bore the admonition very patiently. February 5th. Rose early, walked out, discouraged at the small progress I make in Eastern languages. My state of bodily and mental indolence was becoming so alarming that I struggled hard against both, crying to God for strength. Notwithstanding the reluctance in my own heart, I went to the hospital and preached on Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28, from this time I enjoyed peace and happiness. Dr. Vanderkemp called to take leave. I accompanied him and Brother Smith out of the town with their two wagons. The dear old man showed much affection, and gave me advice and a blessing at parting. While we were standing to take leave, Coaster, a Dutch missionary, was just entering the town with his bundle, having been driven from his place of residence. Brother Reed also appeared from another quarter, though we thought he had gone to sea. These, with Jons, note, probably the missionary destined for Madagascar, end note, and myself made six missionaries, who, in a few minutes, all parted again. Besides visiting and preaching at the hospital among the wounded English, he held public service at the house in which he lodged. In February the fleet sailed again. On the 22nd of April, anchored before Madras, and in the middle of May, he landed at Calcutta. End of chapter 5